Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. An adventurer's daring quest for greatness. As the ice shifted, the men heard creaks and groans. It was the way people died in the Arctic. The musical instrument behind a medical craze. People claimed miraculous cures. He restored her sight. And a Confederate bell moonlighting as a Union spy. The guise of Southern womanhood was the ultimate disguise. Within the walls of great institutions lie secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. Los Angeles, California. This sprawling metropolis has over 7 million cars and 527 miles of freeway. So it's no surprise that there's an institution which celebrates this city's love affair with driving, the Peterson Automotive Museum. Spanning over 300,000 square feet of exhibition space, here visitors can find 150 automotive marvels from all over the world. But among the famous American sports cars and innovative vehicles on display is one bright specimen that hides a dark mystery. The artifact has three wheels, two in the front, one in the back, has seating capacity for two and one door. According to chief curator Leslie Kendall, this car promised more than just a smooth ride. This was gonna solve America's car problems. So how was this car supposed to rescue the automobile industry? And what secrets lurk behind its glossy exterior? Los Angeles, 1973. America is in the midst of an unprecedented energy crisis. In just three months, gas prices have quadrupled. And with the nation reeling from a recession and 9% unemployment, the American public is looking for an automotive answer. 
America was really longing for the kind of car that would give them performance and comfort and style, along with fuel economy that no American car could then provide. But in 1974, one woman says she has the answer. Her name is Elizabeth Carmichael, the founder of a new company called 20th Century Motors. Carmichael claims her research lab has developed a new model that will solve the country's energy crisis. The cart was supposed to get 70 miles to the gallon and go 100 miles an hour and is made of a rocket structural resin. Carmichael calls the vehicle the Dale and promotional materials declare that dollar for dollar, it's the best car ever built. The price of the car, $2,000, was nearly half the price of the average car in 1974. The promise of the Dale catapults it into the national spotlight. And within weeks, it becomes the most sought-after car in the country. Elizabeth Carmichael generated a great deal of positive press. She had what America wanted. The press looked to her as a kind of wise guru. But to bring her car to the masses, she needs a massive influx of cash. So she uses her charm, experience, and compelling biography to woo investors. She spread the word that she had a degree in mechanical engineering and that she was the widow of a NASA engineer with five children and that she would ultimately rule the industry like a queen. Carmichael's tantalizing pitch has the public and investors eating from the palm of her hand. People started putting down deposits on cars and investment money just kept rolling in. Carmichael's business is flourishing. The public and investors are eager to see a finished product. She has a prototype in her office, now on display at the Peterson Automotive Museum, but seems keen to keep curious buyers at bay. Whenever an investor asked Liz Carmichael if they could see a working prototype, she would be happy to point to the one that was in her office, but she would never let them get close to it. Then, without warning, America's automotive queen moves her seemingly prosperous business from L.A. to Dallas. Why would somebody who's just gaining traction in the industry make such a drastic change? With questions swirling over the legitimacy of Carmichael's company, the public wants to know, is there more to this automotive entrepreneur and her miracle car than meets the eye? Despite the rumors, Carmichael carries on marketing the Dale from her new headquarters in Dallas. She continued to take deposits on dealer franchises and found a lot of people willing to put down money. But Carmichael's journey is about to hit a pothole. Authorities have been investigating her for selling stock without a license and obtain a warrant to search the California Research and Development Lab. There, they make a startling discovery about the prototype. The car was not a viable automobile. Looking closely at the Dale, it was partially constructed of two-by-fours and wood screws and nails, all held together in a very haphazard way. And the body wasn't rocket structural resin like it was advertised to be. It was fiberglass. Police raid Carmichael's home in Dallas. But by the time they get there, she has fled, leaving behind evidence of an even more surprising twist. They discovered some wigs, false breasts, and a device that female impersonators use to conceal their sex. And as they sort through these bizarre clues, the investigators learn that Elizabeth Carmichael used to be a man. 
Liz turned out to be a man named Jerry Dean Michael, who had a very checkered past. Jerry Dean Michael has been wanted by the FBI since 1961 for counterfeiting. Jerry Dean Michael used his female appearance to avoid being captured by the police and to help sell the the Dale vehicle. The conniving car dealer is finally tracked down in April 1975 and is convicted of grand theft, fraud, and conspiracy. Eventually, Jerry Dean Michael is sentenced to 32 months behind bars. And this car, now on display at the Peterson Automotive Museum in Los Angeles, stands as the symbol of a promise that was too good to be true. Minneapolis, Minnesota. In 1882, this city generated the nation's first centralized hydroelectric power. So it's only fitting that it hosts an institution dedicated to exploring the mysteries of our electrical world. The Bakken Museum. Named after Earl Bakken, the inventor of the first wearable battery-powered pacemaker, the collection features an 18th century electrostatic generator, an early electrocardiogram machine, and a 1950s electrified magnet for removing metal dust particles from the eye. But there's one obscure device on display that generates a totally different kind of power. This artifact is about three feet high and three feet wide. It's made of mahogany wood, and inside you see that there's a spindle with 28 glass cups, all of different sizes. As chief curator Juliet Berber can attest, this odd apparatus was once believed to hold extraordinary powers. People claimed miraculous cures. They were being cured of all kinds of ailments that they were suffering from. How did this little-known instrument trigger a medical scandal that still resonates today? 1761, London. While traveling in the United Kingdom, American statesman and prolific inventor Benjamin Franklin marvels at a performance of singing glasses. Drinking glasses filled with varying amounts of water that produce a range of notes when played. Franklin is so entranced by the soothing music that he is inspired to reproduce those same sounds in one dynamic instrument. The idea was to mount glass cups, each tuned to different notes, onto a spindle. The spindle could be turned. The player would wet their fingers and press them against the glass cups, and this would emit a tone. Franklin names his device after the Italian word for harmony, dubbing it the harmonica. One such instrument is on display at the Bakken Museum. It was a beautiful tone, it was very unusual, and it quickly became very popular. Soon, composers such as Mozart and Beethoven write pieces of music for the melodious spinning glasses. But there's one practitioner living in Vienna who conceives of a far greater purpose for the instrument. His name is Dr. Franz Mesmer. Mesmer was a wealthy German physician who thought that he could use it for healing as well. The physician asserts that there is an invisible life force coursing through all human beings, which he calls animal magnetism. He believed that disruptions in this animal magnetism were, in many cases, the cause of illnesses. Mesmer claims that the harmonica's soothing tones can alleviate these disruptions and cure the sick. And in 1777, he sets out to prove the effectiveness of his unique medicine. 
he attempts to cure a supposedly untreatable condition afflicting a renowned musician named Maria Theresia Paradis. She was a composer who was blind and had been blind since she was a young child. Mesmer has her relax as the melody of his harmonica washes over the room. Soon Paradis enters a trance-like state and Mesmer proceeds to manipulate her so-called animal magnetism. Then, after only four weeks of treatment, an incredible breakthrough occurs. Mesmer restored her sight. It seems this is the proof Mesmer needs to convince the world of the effects of his groundbreaking therapy. The following year, Mesmer moves to Paris in hopes of expanding his practice. It quickly takes off. Soon, he receives more requests for treatment than he can handle. He became very popular among the aristocracy and very famous for his cures. Even Queen Marie Antoinette befriends Mesmer and becomes his patron. But not everyone is convinced. Many in the medical community were very skeptical about his claims. Academics publicly denigrate Mesmer, calling him a charlatan and a scam artist. And eventually, the Queen's husband, King Louis XVI, is compelled to investigate the doctor's claims. He appointed a number of notable scientists to test Mesmer's work. The French royal believes his commission will uncover the true nature of Mesmer's medicine once and for all. So is Mesmer a true healer of the sick or merely a quack? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey 
1784, Paris. Physician Franz Mesmer has gained international acclaim by healing the sick with the aid of a musical instrument known as the glass harmonica. But many skeptics have their doubts. So is Mesmer really curing the afflicted? Or is his unique brand of medicine simply a sham? King Louis XVI of France appoints a commission to test the validity of Mesmer's claims. And on that team is the very man who invented the primary tool of his practice, Benjamin Franklin. 78-year-old Franklin suffered from gout, so he was particularly interested in Mesmer's treatments. Franklin visits the physician. But after several sessions, it becomes apparent that Mesmer's therapy has no effect on the statesman's malady. He found that they didn't work. He felt nothing and uh, found that they bored him. Franklin relays his experience to the other committee members, and they release their findings. They conclude that there is no scientific evidence for animal magnetism, and the harmonica is deemed a useless instrument for healing the sick. Mesmer is mocked by the people of Paris and leaves a broken man, defeated by the very person who invented his cherished harmonica. It's ironic that Ben Franklin, in turn, became one of the key people who brought Mesmer down. But if Mesmer's techniques were bogus, why did thousands of his patients, including a blind woman, report positive results from treatment with the harmonica? The dreamlike trance that Mesmer's patients entered into was probably something like what we would call today a hypnotic state. That and the power of suggestion is probably what created the cures. The hyper-relaxed states Mesmer induced in his patients are eventually seized upon by psychologists who develop a successful new therapy called hypnosis. And the term mesmerize is coined as a nod to the pioneering physician's ability to induce a trance-like state. And this glass harmonica on display at the Bakken Museum in Minneapolis is one of the few remaining original models of this esoteric instrument that became a controversial tool of medicine. From its earliest days, Washington, D.C. has seen tension between those withholding and those seeking critical information. And within the center of global politicking lies a museum devoted to the art of the sleuth, the International Spy Museum. On display are tools of the trade, including a lipstick pistol, a shoe outfitted with a hidden microphone, and an umbrella that can fire poison pellets. But there is one more unassuming object that has made a momentous impact. It's about eight inches long and less than an inch high. It's written in a combination of cursive and plain script. It has faded a bit, but still very discernible. According to Museum Education Director Amanda Olke, the writing on this tiny strip of paper had an outsized influence on the bloodiest conflict fought on American soil. Life literally depends on this message. So who penned this peculiar note? And how did it alter the outcome of the Civil War? It's 1861. The country is divided as the Civil War begins. And the capital of the Confederacy, Richmond, Virginia, sits right at the center of the struggle. It's a city with strong northern ties, but it's in the middle of the Old South. Richmond is like the country in microcosm. It's literally divided. Some residents are opposed to secession, 
Among them is 43-year-old Elizabeth Van Loo. Her wealthy family is part of Richmond's high society, although her parents both hail from the North. She definitely had strong abolitionist leanings. While her staunch Confederate neighbors may resent her position, they don't believe she poses any real danger to the South. They thought she was a woman. She was not going to be doing anything nefarious. But they couldn't be more wrong. When Van Loo learns of the poor treatment of Union soldiers at a large Confederate prison in town, she volunteers her services. Initially, she's just making their lives a little more comfortable. Nicer food, books, flowers, very genteel. But soon she is using her wealth and impressive connections to help prisoners escape, in part by bribing guards and prison officials to look the other way. Then, in 1863, Van Loo receives a letter from Union General Benjamin Butler. He has a sensitive proposal for the well-placed Southern Belle. He wants her to be his spy on the inside of the Confederate capital. She's asked to provide the Union with information about Confederate supply lines and troop movements, all for one goal, capturing Richmond. Take the Confederate capital, the South will soon fall. Van Loo embraces this dangerous role. Soon, she's recruited more than a dozen Unionist sympathizers to her cause. She was a spy master. Her spy ring consists of grocers, shopkeepers, servants, farmers, anyone that could have valuable information. She even has sources inside the home of Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy. To obscure her treasonous intentions, Van Loo keeps up appearances in Richmond society. She really understood the guise of Southern womanhood, that this was maybe the ultimate disguise. She transmits information to Union officers in tiny rolled-up messages, hidden in shoes, hollowed-out eggs, and custard dishes. A replica of one of these communications, warning a sympathizer not to return to Richmond, is now on display at the International Spy Museum in Washington. In September of 1864, Van Loo receives a critical piece of intelligence. The Confederates are moving troops away from the Richmond-Petersburg line. It means the capital's defenses will be weakened. This is exactly the kind of information General Ulysses S. Grant, now charged with taking Richmond, has been waiting for. Grant seizes this opportunity. He catches the South by surprise, quickly captures Fort Harrison, resulting in a big win for the North. But with Grant getting ever closer to the capital, commanders in Richmond are increasingly nervous and suspicious. Grant's timing just is so impeccable. Win after win, he seems to know exactly where the South is going to be and what's going to happen next. The Southerners realize there may be a mole in their midst. By the fall of 1864, the Confederates are conducting a formal investigation. You can definitely feel the spies' lives are on the line. Suspicious of the Union sympathizer, the military is on the hunt for evidence of treason. Van Lu does what she does so well. She turns on the Southern charm. How can they possibly suspect her? She's just a woman. She's just a Southern lady. And how can they imagine that someone like her would be 
a spy. The soldiers search her home but find nothing. They leave without a clue. She used her courage of her convictions to stay, I think, just one step ahead. Finally, on April 3rd, 1865, the battle for Richmond is over. Union soldiers triumphantly entered the city. Van Lu has a delightful time by raising the first U.S. flag in Richmond over her house. Not long after, she receives a high-ranking visitor, General Grant himself. Grant was there to thank her personally for all she had done to pay his respects to this woman that had helped him win the war. But even as Van Lu is hailed as a Yankee spy, she insists she never participated in any acts of treason. Elizabeth Van Lu, to her dying days, would tell you she was no spy, she was a patriot. And today, at the International Spy Museum in Washington, this replica of one of her many clandestine messages reminds us of the woman whose courage and cunning helped decide the outcome of the Civil War. In the high desert of Idaho sits the small town of Arco. A sleepy farming community, it was also the first city in the world to be lit by atomic power. And just 18 miles to the east is an institution that speaks to this celebrated distinction. The EBR-1 Atomic Museum, a national historic landmark and former nuclear facility. Here, larger-than-life artifacts like a decommissioned control room, stainless steel rods that once housed uranium fuel, and an old spent fuel container showcase the technology at the heart of atomic energy. But amongst radiation-touched relics sits a different sort of object. The artifact is white, a couple feet wide. It's got black lettering. Uh, red lights are, are incorporated into it. As museum tour director Don Miley knows, this fire alert board played a key role in one of the darkest days of the atomic age. This is one of the greatest mysteries in the history of nuclear power. What part did this oversized panel play in an incident that stunned the nation? January 3rd, 1961, 4 p.m. 40 miles west of Idaho Falls, Army Specialist John Burns arrives to work the evening shift at the experimental SL-1 nuclear reactor. SL-1 was an attempt, essentially, for the Army to get into the nuclear game. They saw nuclear power as a way to provide electricity and building heat for the remote radar stations. At the center of this delicate process is uranium, a highly volatile element, which is set in a pool of water. Uranium atoms are easily split into two new atoms, and that splitting will generate enough heat to turn that water into steam to then turn a turbine and a generator and create electricity. And on this cold winter evening, John Burns, Specialist Richard McKinley, and Shift Supervisor Richard Legg are charged with preparing the core for restart after a standard shutdown over the holidays. The key to restarting SL-1 is controlling how much heat that uranium will be generating, and we do that through control rods. The solid metal control rods are lowered into the water pool to stabilize the otherwise volatile uranium. When they're all the way in, it's like you've got your foot completely on the brake. 
to bring the reactor up to power. That's simply pulling up the control rods to allow those atoms of uranium to begin splitting and generating heat. And John Burns is tasked with starting this process by manually lifting the control rods by just a few inches and attaching them to a mechanized system that will control their movement further. But something is about to go dreadfully wrong. At 9.01 p.m., an alarm sounds at a nearby fire station. The warning board, now on display at the EBR-1 Atomic Museum, lights up, indicating a problem at the SL-1 nuclear facility. First responders race to the remote site. There, inside the main reactor room, they make a stunning discovery. They saw a tremendous amount of damage. But the worst is yet to come. The responders found Burns and Leg dead. Richard McKinley is found alive, but he is gravely injured and dies within hours. In the entire history of nuclear power in the United States, this has been the only fatal accident. After an extensive radioactive cleanup, investigators begin their hunt for answers. And based on scratch marks left on the reactor, they make a critical discovery. On the night of the accident, Burns lifted the control rod more than 24 inches. But control rods must be maintained at a specific position in order to regulate the uranium fuel. They could safely lift it up to about 9 inches. Anything over that, and the reactor could go full power immediately. And on the night of January 3rd, that's exactly what happened. The government concluded that the water that was in the reactor flashed into steam, and the steam explosion killed the three men that night. But why did Burns lift the control rod so far out of position, triggering a devastating explosion? It had been documented previously during operating periods that the central rod would stick in place. So more than likely, he probably did some yanking to actually get the rod to release, and he just couldn't stop from pulling it out too far. In the end, officials determined it was just a terrible accident. But the controversy surrounding the incident isn't over. In 1979, a Vermont newspaper publishes an explosive report about the cause of the tragedy. It's based on the information leaked from the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission. Government documents and Army documents revealed that Burns was on the verge of divorce and was very upset about that. But that's not all. It was also rumored that Richard Legg, the supervisor of SL-1, was having an affair with John Burns' wife. And the day of the disaster was Burns' first shift working under his new supervisor. These salacious details lead some to believe that the SL-1 incident may not have been an accident after all. Burns may have pulled that control rod as an act of suicide or murder or both. But with no survivors, the exact events of January 3, 1961, remain unknown. And today, this fire alarm board at the EBR-1 Atomic Museum in Idaho is a grim memorial to the enduring mystery of the deadliest nuclear incident on U.S. soil. New York, New York. Established in the 17th century as a major trading port for its lucrative beaver fur, Manhattan has since prospered to become one of the busiest commercial hubs in the world. And charting the city's explosive development is the Museum of the City of New York. 
Visitors here can view unique artifacts from an 18th century one-horse sleigh to a model of a modern studio apartment. But among the larger effects sits a small one, a hollow figure of a portly man in a suit. This object's made of cast iron. It's about six inches high, around three inches wide. And if you look carefully, what you notice is he's got a slot where your breast pocket would be. As chief curator, Sarah Henry can confirm, this unusual artifact is a portrayal of one man's unbridled reign and dishonorable downfall. He was a brilliant and corrupt politician who milked the city. Who is this bank modeled after? And how did he leave an indelible mark on New York history? 1870, New York City. Immigrants flood into this metropolis looking for economic opportunity, but they are greeted by crime, filth, and disease in overcrowded tenement neighborhoods. New York was entering into a period with great poverty, and people complained about low wages, long hours, and poor living conditions. And one man stands ready to exploit their struggle as a means to strengthen his power. The boss of Tammany Hall, the politician who runs the Democratic Party and the city, William Tweed. Tweed builds hospitals and almshouses and orphanages. He begins to provide a social safety net for the city in a way that hadn't existed before. He also spearheads a number of public works projects and employs the boatloads of immigrants arriving with no money and few prospects. But while positioning himself as the champion of the poor, the man known as Boss Tweed uses the building boom to fuel his insatiable greed. While his constituents toil for $2 a day, Tweed skims millions of dollars from public works projects into his own pocket. William Tweed really rewrote city politics to put himself and his cronies in power. But one man with a strong moral compass aims to take down the thieving politician, a cartoonist for Harper's Magazine named Thomas Nast. Nast saw himself as carrying the banner of good government and saw Tweed as the incarnation of evil in politics. Thomas Nast used the pages of Harper's to launch an absolutely vicious attack through a series of cartoons that portrayed Tweed and his cronies in the worst possible light. Nast depicts Tweed as a beady-eyed glutton, a greedy Roman emperor, and a vulture, images that speak clearly to the millions of illiterate immigrants. Tweed is irate over these cartoons because he says that his constituents don't read those papers, but I can't stop them from seeing those damn pictures. Nast publishes more than 160 satirical illustrations of the political boss, and cracks begin to appear in Tweed's tyrannical reign. In July 1871, the New York Times runs a series of articles blasting Tweed for having embezzled as much as $200 million in municipal funds. And the news sends shockwaves throughout the city and the world. Before the end of the year, he's been arrested and convicted of 204 counts of the 220 that he was charged with. Guilty of everything from forgery to larceny, Tweed is sentenced to 13 years in prison. Thomas Nast is hailed as a hero for his role in exposing Boss Tweed. A toy maker seizes upon the cartoonist's caricatures to make a piggy bank in Tweed's image, like this one on display at the Museum of the City of New York. 
It depicts this portly, self-satisfied politician ready to line his own pockets with the money that you put in. With Tweed in prison, the city is seemingly safe from corruption. But the venal politician isn't about to change his ways. In 1875, he bribes the warden into giving him one day's leave. And Tweed never looks back. He escapes. He's gone. News of his flight hits the headlines. And everybody watches with bated breath to see if William Tweed is going to be found again. For nine months, Tweed evades capture. He certainly had resources to get himself out of the United States and to keep himself going, maybe for the rest of his life. But in September 1876, authorities catch a lucky break. Officials inspecting a Spanish vessel that has returned from Cuba spot a familiar-looking American on board. In fact, he bears a striking resemblance to the man in Thomas Nast's illustrations, Boss Tweed. He had lost a lot of weight on the voyage, but still, he was unmistakable from those Thomas Nast cartoons. Tweed is immediately handed over to authorities and extradited back to the United States. Ultimately, Nast achieves the task he once thought impossible. At the end of the day, in a way, it was Nast that got him. The thieving politician spends the rest of his days in jail, dying in 1878 at the age of 55. And the toy bank in his likeness stands at the Museum of the City of New York as a fitting token from this scandalous chapter in New York's past. Rye, New York. With 14 miles of shoreline overlooking Long Island Sound, the city is a sailor's paradise. It's also home to the 126-year-old American Yacht Club. Here, private members can admire items that celebrate America's rich sailing history and maritime racing culture. But there's one artifact which speaks to a very different kind of race, one that took place thousands of miles from America. This artifact is two and a half feet long. It's made out of wood. There's netting, pieces of string, and a small Norwegian flag near the top. As historian Michael Robinson can attest, when this model's life-sized version first set sail over 120 years ago, its design was groundbreaking. It was perfectly suited for the task it had been designed for. Who pioneered this ship? And what daring expedition did he embark upon? 1890. Modern man has explored almost every corner of the globe. Among the few regions left uncharted are the North and South Poles, and many explorers are keen to get there first. It became a kind of race for prestige. But polar expeditions are fraught with danger. Huge chunks of ice called ice packs can encircle, trap, and crush the hulls of ships. It was the way people died in the Arctic is when their ship gets destroyed. Despite the risks, there's one man who believes he can reach the North Pole and come back alive. A Norwegian named Fritjof Nansen. Nansen had an exceptionally good scientific mind, and yet he was a restless soul too. Whereas previous expeditions have tried to reach the Pole by sailing directly north, the headstrong Nansen thinks he can use natural currents to carry him to his goal. Nansen's idea was to follow the ice to the place it was going, hopefully the North Pole. 
But in order to survive the fatal ice packs, Nansen will have to build an innovative new ship. They realized that this craft had to have dimensions that were totally unlike other craft. Nansen's ship will have a wide hull and a shallow base with smooth and rounded sides. If ice were to form around it, the ship would be squeezed upwards and sit on top of the ice, preventing it from being crushed. This vessel was developed in a way that the ice could not grab hold of it. After three years of construction, the vessel, a model of which is now on display at the American Yacht Club, is complete. It's christened from, the Norwegian word for forward. On June 24, 1893, Nansen and a crew of 12 set sail from Norway to begin their journey to the Arctic. After 12 weeks, they join the west-flowing current and encounter the crushing force of the deadly ice packs. There were scary moments. As the ice shifted and cracked, the men heard creaks and groans all the time. So they were nervous. Two years pass, and Nansen's ship is surviving the ice as he designed it to do. Nansen had answered one question. The Fram was capable of enduring long periods of time in the polar sea intact. But the ship is moving with the ice flow at a glacial pace. Nansen begins to realize that it will take years for it to reach it. Nansen fears that he and the crew don't have enough provisions to get them to the North Pole. For his men to survive, they have to head back to Norway as soon as possible. But the brave explorer is still determined to reach the North Pole and has an audacious plan to get there on foot. He decides to leave the vessel with one other man, Jalmar Johansson. On March 14, 1895, Nansen and Johansson set off across the ice for the North Pole. The conditions were incredibly difficult. As they venture north, the swirling winds build and the temperature drops to minus 40 degrees. Soon, the treacherous ice seems nearly impassable. Then, 226 miles from the pole, the bold explorer makes a difficult decision. He decides to turn back. Despite failing to reach the North Pole, the two men have set a new record. They've traveled farther north than any other men in history. Fifteen months later, Nansen and Johansen return to their native Norway. Nansen and the crew of the Fram are celebrated as heroes. Everybody appreciated the Fram for revolutionizing the way that explorers considered travel in polar ice. Nansen had used the ice to his advantage and had not seen it as an enemy. The revolutionary Fram achieves worldwide fame when, in 1911, Norwegian Roald Amundsen uses it to become the first man to reach the South Pole. And today, this model at the American Yacht Club pays tribute to one man's determination to explore the uncharted world. From a mesmerizing miracle cure to a Civil War spy, a car-toting con artist to a mysterious meltdown. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 